At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. A preliminary chapter to Round the Moon by Jules Verne, a sequel to From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Preliminary Chapter Recapitulating the First Part of This Work and Serving as a Preface to the Second during the year 1860-something, the whole world was greatly excited by scientific experiment unprecedented in the annals of science. The members of the Gun Club, a circle of artillerymen formed at Baltimore after the American War, conceived the idea of putting themselves in communication with the moon—yes, with the moon—by sending to her a projectile. Their president, Barbicane, the promoter of the enterprise, having consulted the astronomers of the Cambridge Observatory upon the subject, took all necessary means to ensure the success of this extraordinary enterprise, which had been declared practicable by the majority of competent judges. After setting on foot a public subscription, which realized nearly $1,200,000, they began the gigantic work. According to the advice forwarded from the members of the observatory, the gun destined to launch the projectile had to be fixed in a country situated between the zero and twenty-eighth degrees of north or south latitude, in order to aim at the moon when at the zenith, and its initiatory velocity was fixed at twelve thousand yards to the second. Launched on the first of December, at ten hours, forty-six minutes, forty seconds p.m., it ought to reach the moon four days after its departure that is, on the 5th of December, at midnight precisely, at the moment of her attaining her perigee, that is, her nearest distance from the earth, which is exactly 86,410 leagues, French, or 238,833 miles mean distance, English. The principal members of the gun club, President Barbicane, Major Elphinstone, the secretary, Joseph T. Maston, and other learned men, held several meetings at which the shape and composition of the projectile were discussed, also the position and nature of the gun, and the quality and quantity of the powder to be used. It was decided, first, that the projectile should be a shell made of aluminum with a diameter of 108 inches and a thickness of 12 inches to its walls and should weigh 19,250 pounds. Secondly, that the gun should be a columbiad cast in iron, 900 feet long, and run perpendicularly into the earth. Thirdly, that the charge should contain 400,000 pounds of gun cotton, 
which, giving out six billions of litres of gas in rear of the projectile, would easily carry it towards the orb of night. These questions determined President Barbicane, assisted by Murchison, the engineer, to choose a spot situated in Florida, in 27 degrees 7 minutes north latitude, and 77 degrees 3 minutes west Greenwich longitude. It was on this spot, after stupendous labour, that the Columbiad was cast with full success. Things stood thus when an incident took place which increased the interest attached to this great enterprise a hundredfold. A Frenchman, an enthusiastic Parisian, as witty as he was bold, asked to be enclosed in the projectile, in order that he might reach the moon and reconnoitre this terrestrial satellite. The name of this intrepid adventurer was Michel Ardin. He landed in America, was received with enthusiasm, held meetings, saw himself carried in triumph, reconciled President Barbicane to his mortal enemy, Captain Nicholl, and as a token of reconciliation, persuaded them both to start with him in the projectile. The proposition being accepted, the shape of the projectile was slightly altered. It was made of a cylindro-conical form. This species of aerial car was lined with strong springs and partitions to deaden the shock of departure. It was provided with food for a year, water for some months, and gas for some days. A self-acting apparatus supplied the three travellers with air to breathe. At the same time, on one of the highest points of the Rocky Mountains, the gun club had a gigantic telescope erected, in order that they might be able to follow the course of the projectile through space. All was then ready. On the 30th November, at the hour fixed upon, from the midst of an extraordinary crowd of spectators, the departure took place, and for the first time three human beings quitted the terrestrial globe and launched into interplanetary space with almost a certainty of reaching their destination. These bold travellers, Michel Ardin, President Barbicane, and Captain Nicholl, ought to make the passage in ninety-seven hours, thirteen minutes, and twenty seconds. Consequently, their arrival on the lunar disk could not take place until the 5th December at twelve at night, at the exact moment when the moon should be full, and not on the 4th, as some badly informed journals had announced. But an unforeseen circumstance, that is, the detonation produced by the Columbiad, had the immediate effect of troubling the terrestrial atmosphere by accumulating a large quantity of vapour, a phenomenon which excited universal indignation, for the moon was hidden from the eyes of the watchers for several nights. The worthy Joseph T. Maston, the staunchest friend of the three travellers, started for the Rocky Mountains, accompanied by the Honourable J. Belfast, director of the Cambridge Observatory, and reached the station of Long's Peak, where the telescope was erected which brought the moon within an apparent distance of two leagues. The Honourable Secretary of the Gun Club wished himself to observe the vehicle of his daring friends. The accumulation of clouds in the atmosphere prevented all observations on the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th of December. Indeed, it was thought that all observations would have to be put off to the 3rd of January in the following year, 
for the moon entering its last quarter on the eleventh would then only present an ever-decreasing portion of her disk, insufficient to allow of their following the course of the projectile. At length, to the general satisfaction, a heavy storm cleared the atmosphere on the night of the 11th and 12th December, and the moon, with half-illuminated disk, was plainly to be seen upon the black sky. That very night a telegram was sent from the station of Long's Peak by Joseph T. Maston and Belfast, to the gentlemen of the Cambridge Observatory, announcing that on the 11th of December at 8 hours 47 minutes p.m., the projectile launched by the Columbiad of Stones Hill had been detected by Messrs. Belfast and Maston, that it had deviated from its course from some unknown cause, and had not reached its destination, but that it had passed near enough to be retained by the lunar attraction that its rectilinear movement had been changed to a circular one, and that following an elliptical orbit round the star of night, it had become its satellite. The telegram added that the elements of this new star had not yet been calculated, and indeed three observations made upon a star in three different positions are necessary to determine these elements. Then it showed that the distance separating the projectile from the lunar surface might be reckoned at about 2,833 miles. It ended with this double hypothesis. Either the attraction of the moon would draw it to herself, and the travellers thus attain their end, or that the projectile, held in one immutable orbit, would gravitate around the lunar disk to all eternity. With such alternatives, what would be the fate of the travellers? Certainly they had food for some time, but supposing they did succeed in their rash enterprise, how would they return? Could they ever return? Should they hear from them? These questions, debated by the most learned pens of the day, strongly engrossed the public attention. It is advisable here to make a remark which ought to be well considered by hasty observers. When a purely speculative discovery is announced to the public, it cannot be done with too much prudence. No one is obliged to discover either a planet, a comet, or a satellite, and whoever makes a mistake in such a case exposes himself justly to the derision of the mass. Far better is it to wait, and that is what the impatient Joseph T. Maston should have done before sending this telegram forth to the world, which, according to his idea, told the whole result of the enterprise. Indeed, this telegram contained two sorts of errors, as was proved eventually. First, errors of observation, concerning the distance of the projectile from the surface of the moon, for on the 11th December it was impossible to see it. And what Joseph T. Maston had seen, or thought he saw, could not have been the projectile of the Columbiad. Secondly, errors of theory on the fate in store for the said projectile, for in making it a satellite of the moon it was putting it in direct contradiction to all mechanical laws. One single hypothesis of the observers of Long's Peak could ever be realized, that which foresaw the case of the travellers, if still alive, uniting their efforts with the lunar attraction to attain the surface of the disk. Now these men, as clever as they were daring, had survived the terrible shock consequent on their departure, 
and it is their journey in the projectile car which is here related in its most dramatic as well as its most singular details. This recital will destroy many illusions and surmises, but it will give a true idea of the singular changes in store for such an enterprise. It will bring out the scientific instincts of Barbicane, the industrious resources of Nickel, and the audacious humor of Michel Ardin. Besides this, it will prove that their worthy friend, Joseph T. Maston, was wasting his time, while leaning over the gigantic telescope he watched the course of the moon through the starry space. End of chapter. Chapter One of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter One From Twenty Minutes Past Ten to 47 minutes past 10 p.m. As 10 o'clock struck, Michel Ardin, Barbicane, and Nicholl took leave of the numerous friends they were leaving on the earth. The two dogs, destined to propagate the canine race on the lunar continents, were already shut up in the projectile. The three travellers approached the orifice of the enormous cast-iron tube, and a crane let them down to the conical top of the projectile. There, an opening made for the purpose gave them access to the aluminum car. The tackle belonging to the crane being hauled from outside, the mouth of the Columbiad was instantly disencumbered of its last supports. Nickel, once introduced with his companions inside the projectile, began to close the opening by means of a strong plate, held in position by powerful screws. Other plates, closely fitted, covered the lenticular glasses, and the travellers, hermetically enclosed in their metal prison, were plunged in profound darkness. "'And now, my dear companions,' said Michel Ardin, "'let us make ourselves at home. I am a domesticated man and strong in housekeeping. We are bound to make the best of our new lodgings, and make ourselves comfortable. And first let us try and see a little.' gas was not invented for moles. So saying, the thoughtless fellow lit a match by striking it on the sole of his boot, and approached the burner fixed to the receptacle, in which the carbonized hydrogen, stored at high pressure, sufficed for the lighting and warming of the projectile for a hundred and forty-four hours, or six days and six nights. The gas caught fire, and thus lighted, the projectile looked like a comfortable room with thickly padded walls, furnished with a circular divan, and a roof rounded in the shape of a dome. The objects it contained—arms, instruments, and utensils, securely fastened against the rounds of wadding—could bear the shock of departure with impunity. Humanly speaking, every possible precaution had been taken to bring this rash experiment to a successful termination. Michel Ardin examined everything, and declared himself satisfied with his installation. "'It is a prison,' said he, "'but a travelling prison, and, with the right of putting my nose to the window, I could well stand a lease of a hundred years. <laughs> 
You smile, Barbicane. Have you any arrière pensée? Do you say to yourself, this prison may be our tomb? Tomb, perhaps. Still, I would not change it for Mahomet's, which floats in space but never advances an inch. Whilst Michel Ardan was speaking, Barbicane and Nicol were making their last preparations. Nicol's chronometer marked twenty minutes past ten p.m. when the three travellers were finally enclosed in their projectile. This chronometer was set within the tenth of a second by that of Murchison the engineer. Barbicane consulted it. "'My friends,' said he, "'it is twenty minutes past ten. At forty-seven minutes past ten, Murchison will launch the electric spark on the wire which communicates with the charge of the Columbiad. At that precise moment we shall leave our spheroid. Thus we have still twenty-seven minutes to remain on the earth.' Twenty-six minutes, thirteen seconds,' replied the methodical Nicol. "'Well,' exclaimed Michel Ardan, in a good-humoured tone, "'much may be done in twenty-six minutes. The gravest questions of morals and politics may be discussed, and even solved.' Twenty-six minutes well employed are worth more than twenty-six years in which nothing is done. Some seconds of a Pascal or a Newton— are more precious than the whole existence of a crowd of raw simpletons. "'And you conclude, then, you everlasting talker?' asked Barbicane. "'I conclude that we have twenty-six minutes left,' replied Ardin. Twenty-four only,' said Nicol. "'Well, twenty-four, if you like, my noble captain,' said Ardin. Twenty-four minutes in which to investigate—' "'Michel,' said Barbicane, during the passage we shall have plenty of time to investigate the most difficult questions. For the present we must occupy ourselves with our departure. Are we not ready? Doubtless, but there are still some precautions to be taken, to deaden as much as possible the first shock. Have we not the water cushions placed between the partition breaks, whose elasticity will sufficiently protect us? "'I hope so, Michel,' replied Barbicane gently. "'But I am not sure.' "'Ha! The choker!' exclaimed Michel Ardan. "'He hopes! He is not sure! And he waits for the moment when we are in case to make this deplorable admission. I beg to be allowed to get out!' "'And how?' asked Barbicane. "'Huff!' said Michel Ardan. "'It is not easy.' We are in the train, and the guard's whistle will sound before twenty-four minutes are over. Twenty, said Nicol. For some moments the three travellers looked at each other. Then they began to examine the objects imprisoned with them. Everything is in its place, said Barbicane. We have now to decide how we can best place ourselves to resist the shock. Position cannot be an indifferent matter— and we must as much as possible prevent the rush of blood to the head. "'Just so,' said Nicol. "'Then,' replied Michel Ardan, ready to suit the action to the word, "'let us put our heads down and our feet in the air, like the clowns in the Grand Circus.' "'No,' said Barbicane. "'Let us stretch ourselves on our sides. We shall resist the shock better that way.' Remember that, when the projectile starts, it matters little whether we are in it or before it. It amounts to much the same thing. 
if it is only much the same thing, I may cheer up, said Michel Ardin. Do you approve of my idea, Nicol? asked Barbicane. Entirely, replied the captain. We've still thirteen minutes and a half. That Nicol is not a man, exclaimed Michel. He is a chronometer with seconds, an escape, and eight holes. But his companions were not listening. They were taking up their last positions with the most perfect coolness. They were like two methodical travellers in a car, seeking to place themselves as comfortably as possible. We might well ask ourselves of what materials are the hearts of these Americans made, to whom the approach of the most frightful danger added no pulsation. Three thick and solidly made couches had been placed in the projectile. Nicol and Barbicane placed them in the centre of the disc forming the floor. There the three travellers were to stretch themselves some moments before their departure. During this time, Ardin, not being able to keep still, turned in his narrow prison like a wild beast in a cage, chatting with his friends, speaking to the dogs Diana and Satellite, to whom, as may be seen, he had given significant names. "'Ah, Diana! Ah, Satellite!' he exclaimed, teasing them. "'So you are going to show the moon-dogs the good habits of the dogs of the earth!' That will do honour to the canine race. If ever we do come down again, I will bring a cross-type of moon-dogs, which will make us stir. If there are dogs in the moon, said Barbicane. There are, said Michel Ardin. Just as there are horses, cows, donkeys, and chickens, I bet that we shall find chickens. A hundred dollars we shall find none, said Nicol. Done, my captain replied Ardin, clasping Nicol's hand. But, by the by, you have already lost three bets with our president, as the necessary funds for the enterprise have been found, as the operation of casting has been successful, and lastly, as the Columbiad has been loaded without accident, six thousand dollars. Yes, replied Nicol. Thirty-seven minutes, six seconds past ten— it is understood, Captain. Well, before another quarter of an hour you will have to count nine thousand dollars to the President, four thousand because the Columbiad will not burst, and five thousand because the projector will rise more than six miles in the air. I have the dollars, replied Nicol, slapping the pocket of his coat. I only ask to be allowed to pay. Come, Nicol, I see that you are a man of method which I could never be. But indeed you have made a series of bets of very little advantage to yourself, allow me to tell you. And why? asked Nicol. Because if you gain the first, the Columbiad will have burst, and the projectile with it, and Barbicane will no longer be there to reimburse your dollars. My stake is deposited at the bank in Baltimore, replied Barbicane simply and if Nicol is not there, it will go to his heirs. "'Ah! you practical men!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'I admire you the more for not being able to understand you.' Forty-two minutes past ten, said Nicol. "'Only five minutes more,' answered Barbicane. "'Yes, five little minutes,' replied Michel Ardin. 
and we are enclosed in a projectile at the bottom of a gun nine hundred feet long, and under this projectile are rammed four hundred thousand pounds of gun-cotton, which is equal to one million six hundred pounds of ordinary powder. And friend Murchison, with his chronometer in hand, his eye fixed on the needle, his finger on the electric apparatus, is counting the seconds preparatory to launching us into interplanetary space. "'Enough, Michel, enough,' said Barbicane, in a serious voice. "'Let us prepare. A few instants alone separate us from an eventful moment. One clasp of the hand, my friends.' "'Yes,' exclaimed Michel Ardin, more moved than he wished to appear, and the three bold companions were united in a last embrace. "'God preserve us!' said the religious Barbicane. Michel Ardin and Nicholl stretched themselves on the couches placed in the centre of the disc. Forty-seven minutes past ten, murmured the captain. Twenty seconds more. Barbicane quickly put out the gas, and lay down by his companions, and the profound silence was only broken by the ticking of the chronometer, marking the seconds. Suddenly a dreadful shock was felt, and the projectile, under the force of six billions of litres of gas, developed by the combustion of the peroxyl, mounted into space. End of chapter Chapter 2 of Round the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 2. The First Half Hour. What had happened? What effect had this frightful shock produced? Had the ingenuity of the constructors of the projectile obtained any happy result? Had the shock been deadened, thanks to the springs, the four plugs, the water cushions, and the partition breaks? Had they been able to subdue the frightful pressure of the initiatory speed of more than eleven thousand yards, which was enough to traverse Paris or New York in a second? This was evidently the question suggested to the thousand spectators of this moving scene. They forgot the aim of the journey, and thought only of the travellers. And if one amongst them, Joseph T. Maston, for example, could have cast one glimpse into the projectile, what would he have seen? Nothing, then. The darkness was profound. But its cylindro-conical partitions had resisted wonderfully. Not a rent or a dent anywhere. The wonderful projectile was not even heated under the intense deflagration of the powder, nor liquefied, as they seemed to fear, in a shower of aluminum. The interior showed but little disorder. Indeed, only a few objects had been violently thrown towards the roof, but the most important seemed not to have suffered from the shock at all. Their fixtures were intact. On the movable disc, sunk down to the bottom by the smashing of the partition breaks and the escape of the water, three bodies lay apparently lifeless. Barbicane, Nicholl, and Michel Ardin. Did they still breathe? Or was the projectile nothing now but a metal coffin, bearing three corpses into space? Some minutes after the departure of the projectile, one of the bodies moved, 
shook its arms, lifted its head, and finally succeeded in getting on its knees. It was Michel Ardin. He felt himself all over, gave a sonorous hem, and then said, "'Michel Ardin is whole. How about the others?' The courageous Frenchman tried to rise, but could not stand. His head swam from the rush of blood. He was blind. He was like a drunken man. Brr, said he. It produces the same effect as two bottles of Corton, though perhaps less agreeable to swallow. Then, passing his hands several times across his forehead and rubbing his temples, he called in a firm voice, Nicole, Barbicane! He waited anxiously. No answer, not even a sigh, to show that the hearts of his companions were still beating. He called again. The same silence. "'The devil!' he exclaimed. "'They look as if they had fallen from a fifth story on their heads. "'Bah!' he added, with that imperturbable confidence which nothing could check. "'If a Frenchman can get on his knees, two Americans ought to be able to get on their feet. "'But first let us light up.' Ardin felt the tide of life return by degrees. His blood became calm and returned to its accustomed circulation. Another effort restored his equilibrium. He succeeded in rising, drew a match from his pocket, and approaching the burner, lighted it. The receiver had not suffered at all. The gas had not escaped. Besides, the smell would have betrayed it, and in that case Michel Ardin could not have carried a lighted match with impunity through the space filled with hydrogen. The gas mixing with the air would have produced a detonating mixture, and the explosion would have finished what the shock had perhaps begun. When the burner was lit, Ardin leaned over the bodies of his companions. They were lying one on the other, an inert mass, nickel above, barbicane underneath. Ardin lifted the captain, propped him up against the divan, and began to rub vigorously. This means, used with judgment, restored Nicol, who opened his eyes, and, instantly recovering his presence of mind, seized Ardin's hand and looked around him. "'And Barbicane?' said he. "'Each in turn,' replied Michel Ardin. "'I began with you, Nicol, because you were on top. Now let us look to Barbicane.' Saying which, Ardin and Nicol raised the president of the gun-club and laid him on the divan. He seemed to have suffered more than either of his companions. He was bleeding, but Nicol was reassured by finding that the hemorrhage came from a slight wound on the shoulder, a mere graze which he bound up carefully. Still, Barbicane was a long time coming to himself, which frightened his friends, who did not spare friction. "'He breathes, though,' said Nicol, putting his ear to the chest of the wounded man. "'Yes,' replied Ardin. He breathes like a man who has some notion of that daily operation. Rub, Nicol, let us rub harder. And the two improvised practitioners worked so hard and so well that Barbicane recovered his senses. He opened his eyes, sat up, took his two friends by the hands, and his first words were, Nicol, are we moving? Nicol and Barbicane looked at each other. They had not yet troubled themselves about the projectile. Their first thought had been for the traveller, not for the car. "'Well, are we really moving?' repeated Michel Ardin. "'Or quietly resting on the soil of Florida,' 
asked Nicol. "'Or at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico?' added Michel Ardin. "'What an idea!' exclaimed the President. And this double hypothesis suggested by his companions had the effect of recalling him to his senses. In any case, they could not yet decide on the position of the projectile. Its apparent immovability, and the want of communication with the outside, prevented them from solving the question. Perhaps the projectile was unwinding its course through space. Perhaps after a short rise it had fallen upon the earth, or even in the Gulf of Mexico, a fall which the narrowness of the peninsula of Florida would render not impossible. The case was serious, the problem interesting, and one that must be solved as soon as possible. Thus, highly excited, Barbicane's moral energy triumphed over physical weakness, and he rose to his feet. He listened. Outside was perfect silence, but the thick padding was enough to intercept all sounds coming from the earth. But one circumstance struck Barbicane, that the temperature inside the projectile was singularly high. The President drew a thermometer from its case and consulted it. The instrument showed eighty-one degrees Fahrenheit. "'Yes!' he exclaimed. "'Yes, we are moving! This stifling heat, penetrating through the partitions of the projectile, is produced by its friction on the atmospheric strata. It will soon diminish, because we are already floating in space, and after having been nearly stifled, we shall have to suffer intense cold.' "'What?' said Michel Ardin. "'According to your showing, Barbicane, we are already beyond the limits of the terrestrial atmosphere? Without a doubt, Michel. Listen to me. It is fifty-five minutes past ten. We have been gone about eight minutes. And if our initiatory speed has not been checked by the friction, six seconds would be enough for us to pass through the forty miles of atmosphere which surrounds the globe. Just so, replied Nicholl. But in what proportion do you estimate the diminution of speed by friction? In the proportion of one-third, Nicol. This diminution is considerable, but according to my calculations it is nothing less. If, then, we had an initiatory speed of twelve thousand yards, on leaving the atmosphere this speed would be reduced to nine thousand one hundred sixty-five yards. In any case, we have already passed through this interval, and— And then— said Michel Ardin, Friend Nicol has lost his two bets, four thousand dollars because the Columbiad did not burst, five thousand dollars because the projectile has risen more than six miles. Now, Nicol, pay up. Let us prove it first, said the captain, and we will pay afterwards. It is quite possible that Barbicane's reasoning is correct, and that I have lost my nine thousand dollars but a new hypothesis presents itself to my mind, and it annuls the wager. "'What is that?' asked Barbicane quickly. "'The hypothesis that, for some reason or other, fire was never set to the powder, and we have not started at all.' "'My goodness, Captain!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'That hypothesis is worthy of my brain. It cannot be a serious one, for have we not been half annihilated by the shock?' Did I not recall you to life? Is not the President's shoulder still bleeding from the blow it has received? Granted, replied Nicol. But one question. Well, Captain? 
Did you hear the detonation, which certainly ought to be loud? No, replied Ardin, much surprised. Certainly I did not hear the detonation. And you, Barbicane? Nor I neither. Very well, said Nicol. Well, now, murmured the President, why did we not hear the detonation? The three friends looked at each other with a disconcerted air. It was quite an inexplicable phenomenon. The projectile had started, and consequently there must have been a detonation. Let us find out where we are, said Barbicane, and let down the panel. This very simple operation was soon accomplished. The nuts which held the bolts to the outer plates of the right-hand scuttle gave way under the pressure of the English wrench. These bolts were pushed outside, and buffers covered with India rubber stopped up the holes which let them through. Immediately the outer plate fell back upon its hinges like a porthole, and the lenticular glass which closed the scuttle appeared. A similar one was let into the thick partition on the opposite side of the projectile, another in the top of the dome, and finally a fourth in the middle of the base. They could, therefore, make observations in four different directions, the firmament by the side and most direct windows, the earth or the moon by the upper and under openings in the projectile. Barbicane and his two companions immediately rushed to the uncovered window, but it was lit by no ray of light. Profound darkness surrounded them, which, however, did not prevent the President from exclaiming, "'No, my friends, we have not fallen back upon the earth. No, nor are we submerged in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes, we are mounting into space. See those stars shining in the night, and that impenetrable darkness heaped up between the earth and us?' "'Hurrah! hurrah!' cried Michel, Ardin, and Nicol in one voice." Indeed, this thick darkness proved that the projectile had left the earth, for the soil, brilliantly lit by the moonbeams, would have been visible to the travellers if they had been lying on its surface. This darkness also showed that the projectile had passed the atmospheric strata, for the diffused light spread in the air would have been reflected on the metal walls, which reflection was wanting. This light would have lit the window, and the window was dark. Doubt was no longer possible. The travellers had left the earth. "'I have lost,' said Nicol. "'I congratulate you,' replied Ardin. "'Here are the nine thousand dollars,' said the captain, drawing a roll of paper dollars from his pocket. "'Will you have a receipt for it?' asked Barbicane, taking the sum. "'If you do not mind,' answered Nicol, "'it is more business-like.' and coolly and seriously, as if he had been at his strong-box, the President drew forth his notebook, tore out a blank leaf, wrote a proper receipt in pencil, dated and signed it with the usual flourish, and gave it to the captain, who carefully placed it in his pocket-book. Michel Ardin, taking off his hat, bowed to his two companions without speaking. So much formality under such circumstances left him speechless. He had never before seen anything so American. This affair settled, Barbicane and Nicol had returned to the window, and were watching the constellations. The stars looked like bright points on the black sky, and from that side they could not see the orb of night, 
which, travelling from east to west, would rise by degrees towards the zenith. Its absence drew the following remark from Ardin. "'And the moon! Will she perchance fail at our rendezvous?' "'Do not alarm yourself,' said Barbicane. "'Our future globe is at its post, but we cannot see her from this side. Let us open the other.' As Barbicane was about leaving the window to open the opposite scuttle, his attention was attracted by the approach of a brilliant object. It was an enormous disk, whose colossal dimension could not be estimated. Its face, which was turned to the earth, was very bright. One might have thought it a small moon reflecting the light of the larger one. She advanced with great speed, and seemed to describe an orbit round the earth which would intersect the passage of the projectile. This body revolved upon its axis, and exhibited the phenomena of all celestial bodies abandoned in space. "'Ah!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'What is that? Another projectile!' Barbicane did not answer. The appearance of this enormous body surprised and troubled him. A collision was possible, and might be attended with deplorable results." Either the projectile would deviate from its path, or a shock, breaking its impetus, might precipitate it to the earth. Or, lastly, it might be irresistibly drawn away by the powerful asteroid. The President caught at a glance the consequences of these three hypotheses, either of which would, one way or the other, bring their experiment to an unsuccessful and fatal termination. His companion stood silently looking into space. The object grew rapidly as it approached them, and by an optical illusion the projectile seemed to be throwing itself before it. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'We shall run into one another!' Instinctively the travellers drew back. Their dread was great, but it did not last many seconds. The asteroid passed several hundred yards from the projectile and disappeared not so much from the rapidity of its course as that its face being opposite the moon, it was suddenly merged into the perfect darkness of space. "'A happy journey to you!' exclaimed Michel Ardin, with a sigh of relief. "'Surely infinity of space is large enough for a poor little projectile to walk through without fear. Now what is this portentous globe which nearly struck us?' "'I know,' replied Barbicane. "'Oh, indeed, you know everything!' "'It is,' said Barbicane, "'a simple meteorite, but an enormous one, which the attraction of the earth has retained as a satellite.' "'Is it possible?' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'The earth, then, has two moons, like Neptune?' "'Yes, my friend, two moons, though it passes generally for having only one. But this second moon is so small, and its speed so great.' that the inhabitants of the earth cannot see it. It was by noticing disturbances that a French astronomer, Monsieur Petit, was able to determine the existence of this second satellite and calculate its elements. According to his observations, this meteorite will accomplish its revolution round the earth in three hours and twenty minutes, which implies a wonderful rate of speed. "'Do all astronomers admit the existence of this satellite?' asked Nicholl. "'No,' replied Barbicane. "'But if, like us, they had met it, they could no longer doubt it. Indeed, I think that this meteorite, 
which, had it struck the projectile, would have much embarrassed us, will give us the means of deciding what our position in space is. "'How?' said Ardin. "'Because its distance is known, and when we met it, we were exactly 4,650 miles from the surface of the terrestrial globe.' "'More than two thousand French leagues!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'That beats the express trains of the pitiful globe called the Earth.' "'I should think so,' replied Nicholl, consulting his chronometer. "'It is eleven o'clock, and it is only thirteen minutes since we left the American continent.' "'Only thirteen minutes,' said Barbicane. "'Yes,' said Nicholl. And if our initiatory speed of twelve thousand yards has been kept up, we shall have made about twenty thousand miles in the hour. That is all very well, my friends, said the President, but the insoluble question still remains. Why did we not hear the detonation of the Columbiad? For want of an answer, the conversation dropped, and Barbicane began thoughtfully to let down the shutter of the second side. He succeeded and through the uncovered glass the moon filled the projectile with a brilliant light. Nicholl, as an economical man, put out the gas, now useless, and whose brilliancy prevented any observation of the interplanetary space. The lunar disk shone with wonderful purity. Her rays, no longer filtered through the vapory atmosphere of the terrestrial globe, shone through the glass filling the air in the interior of the projectile with silvery reflections. The black curtain of the firmament, in reality, heightened the moon's brilliancy, which, in this void of ether unfavorable to diffusion, did not eclipse the neighboring stars. The heavens, thus seen, presented quite a new aspect, and one which the human eye could never dream of. One may conceive the interest with which these bold men watched the orb of night, the great aim of their journey. In its motion, the Earth's satellite was insensibly nearing the zenith, the mathematical point which it ought to attain ninety-six hours later. Her mountains, her plains, every projection was as clearly discernible to their eyes as if they were observing it from some spot upon the Earth, but its light was developed through space with a wonderful intensity. The disk shone like a platinum mirror, of the earth flying from under their feet, the travellers had lost all recollection. It was Captain Nicholl who first recalled their attention to the vanishing globe. "'Yes,' said Michel Ardin, "'do not let us be ungrateful to it. Since we are leaving our country, let our last looks be directed to it. I wish to see the earth once more before it is quite hidden from my eyes.' To satisfy his companions, Barbicane began to uncover the window at the bottom of the projectile, which would allow them to observe the earth direct. The disk, which the force of the projection had beaten down to the base, was removed, not without difficulty. Its fragments, placed carefully against the wall, might serve again upon occasion. Then a circular gap appeared, nineteen inches in diameter, hollowed out of the lower part of the projectile. A glass cover, six inches thick and strengthened with upper fastenings, closed it tightly. Beneath was fixed an aluminum plate, held in place by bolts. The screws being undone, and the bolts let go, the plate fell down, 
and visible communication was established between the interior and the exterior. Michel Ardin knelt by the glass. It was cloudy, seemingly opaque. "'Well!' he exclaimed. "'And the earth?' "'The earth?' said Barbicane. "'There it is.' "'What? That little thread? That silver crescent?' "'Doubtless, Michel. In four days, when the moon will be full, at the very time we shall reach it, the earth will be new, and will only appear to us as a slender crescent which will soon disappear, and for some days will be enveloped in utter darkness. "'That the earth?' repeated Michel Ardin, looking with all his eyes at the thin slip of his native planet. The explanation given by President Barbicane was correct. The earth, with respect to the projectile, was entering its last phase. It was in its octant, and showed a crescent finely traced on the dark background of the sky. Its light, rendered bluish by the thick strata of the atmosphere, was less intense than that of the crescent moon, but it was of considerable dimensions, and looked like an enormous arch stretched across the firmament. Some parts brilliantly lighted, especially on its concave part, showed the presence of high mountains, often disappearing behind thick spots, which are never seen on the lunar disk. They were rings of clouds placed concentrically round the terrestrial globe. Whilst the travellers were trying to pierce the profound darkness, a brilliant cluster of shooting stars burst upon their eyes. Hundreds of meteorites, ignited by the friction of the atmosphere, irradiated the shadow of the luminous train, and lined the cloudy parts of the disk with their fire. At this period the earth was at its perihelium, and the month of December is so propitious to these shooting stars that astronomers have counted as many as twenty-four thousand in an hour. But Michel Ardin, disdaining scientific reasonings, preferred thinking that the earth was thus saluting the departure of her three children with their most brilliant fireworks. Indeed, this was all they saw of the globe lost in the shadow, an inferior orb of the solar world, rising and setting to the great planets like a simple morning or evening star. This globe, where they had left all their affections, was nothing more than a fugitive crescent. Long did the three friends look without speaking, though united in heart, whilst the projectile sped onward with an ever-decreasing speed. Then an irresistible drowsiness crept over their brain. Was it weariness both of body and mind? No doubt, for after the over-excitement of those last hours passed upon earth, reaction was inevitable. "'Well,' said Nicol, "'since we must sleep, let us sleep.' And stretching themselves on their couches, they were all three soon in a profound slumber. But they had not forgotten themselves more than a quarter of an hour, when Barbicane sat up suddenly, and rousing his companions with a loud voice, exclaimed, "'I have found it!' "'What have you found?' asked Michel Ardin, jumping from his bed. "'The reason why we did not hear the detonation of the Columbiad.' "'And it is,' said Nicol. "'because our projectile travelled faster than the sound.'" End of chapter Chapter 3 of Round the Moon 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne, Chapter 3 Their Place of Shelter. This curious but certainly correct explanation once given, the three friends returned to their slumbers. Could they have found a calmer or more peaceful spot to sleep in? On the earth, houses, towns, cottages, and country feel every shock given to the exterior of the globe. On sea, the vessels rocked by the waves are still in motion. In the air, the balloon oscillates incessantly on the fluid strata of diverse densities. This projectile alone, floating in perfect space, in the midst of perfect silence, offered perfect repose. Thus the sleep of our adventurous travellers might have been indefinitely prolonged, if an unexpected noise had not awakened them at about seven o'clock in the morning of the 2nd of December, eight hours after their departure. This noise was a very natural barking. "'The dogs! It is the dogs!' exclaimed Michel Ardin, rising at once. "'They are hungry,' said Nicol. "'By Jove!' replied Michel. "'We have forgotten them!' "'Where are they?' asked Barbicane. They looked and found one of the animals crouched under the divan. Terrified and shaken by the initiatory shock, it had remained in the corner till its voice returned with the pangs of hunger." It was the amiable Diana, still very confused, who crept out of her retreat, though not without much persuasion, Michel Ardin encouraging her with most gracious words. "'Come, Diana,' said he, "'come, my girl, thou whose destiny will be marked in the Synegetic annals, thou whom the pagans would have given as companion to the god Anubis, and Christians as friend to saint Roch." Thou who art rushing into interplanetary space, and wilt perhaps be the eve of all selenite dogs. Come, Diana, come here. Diana, flattered or not, advanced by degrees, uttering plaintive cries. Good, said Barbicane. I see Eve, but where is Adam? Adam, replied Michel, Adam cannot be far off. He is there somewhere. We must call him. Satellite! Here, satellite! But satellite did not appear. Diana would not leave off howling. They found, however, that she was not bruised, and they gave her a pie which silenced her complaints. As to satellite, he seemed quite lost. They had to hunt a long time before finding him in one of the upper compartments of the projectile, whither some unaccountable shock must have violently hurled him. The poor beast, much hurt, was in a piteous state. "'The devil!' said Michel. They brought the unfortunate dog down with great care. Its skull had been broken against the roof, and it seemed unlikely that he could recover from such a shock. Meanwhile he was stretched comfortably on a cushion. Once there he heaved a sigh. "'We will take care of you,' said Michel. We are responsible for your existence. I would rather lose an arm than a paw of my poor satellite. Saying which, he offered some water to the wounded dog, who swallowed it with avidity. 
This attention paid, the travellers watched the earth and the moon attentively. The earth was now only discernible by a cloudy disk ending in a crescent, rather more contracted than that of the previous evening, but its expanse was still enormous compared with that of the moon, which was approaching nearer and nearer to a perfect circle. "'By Jove!' said Michel Ardin. "'I am really sorry that we did not start when the earth was full, that is to say, when our globe was in opposition to the sun.' "'Why?' asked Nicholl. "'Because we should have seen our continents and seas in a new light, the first resplendent under the solar rays, the latter cloudy as represented on some maps of the world. I should like to have seen those poles of the earth on which the eye of man has never yet rested.' "'I dare say,' replied Barbicane, "'but if the earth had been full, the moon would have been new, that is to say, invisible, because of the rays of the sun. It is better for us to see the destination we wish to reach than the point of departure.' "'You are right, Barbicane,' replied Captain Nicholl, "'and besides, when we have reached the moon, we shall have time during the long lunar nights to consider at our leisure the globe on which our likenesses swarm.' "'Our likenesses!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'They are no more our likenesses than the Selenites are. We inhabit a new world, peopled by ourselves, the projectile. I am Barbicane's likeness, and Barbicane is Nichols. Beyond us, around us, Human nature is at an end, and we are the only population of this microcosm until we become pure selenites. "'In about eighty-eight hours,' replied the captain. "'Which means to say,' asked Michel Ardin, "'that it is half-past eight, replied Nicholl. "'Very well,' retorted Michel. "'Then it is impossible for me to find even the shadow of a reason why we should not go to breakfast.' Indeed, the inhabitants of the new star could not live without eating, and their stomachs were suffering from the imperious laws of hunger. Michel Ardin, as a Frenchman, was declared chief cook, an important function, which raised no rival. The gas gave sufficient heat for the culinary apparatus, and the provision box furnished the elements of this first feast. The breakfast began with three bowls of excellent soup thanks to the liquefaction in hot water of those precious cakes of Liebig, prepared from the best parts of the ruminants of the pompous. To the soup succeeded some beefsteaks, compressed by an hydraulic press, as tender and succulent as if brought straight from the kitchen of an English eating-house. Michel, who was imaginative, maintained that they were even red. Preserved vegetables— "'Fresher than nature,' said the amiable Michel, succeeded the dish of meat, and was followed by some cups of tea with bread and butter, after the American fashion. The beverage was declared exquisite, and was due to the infusion of the choicest leaves, of which the Emperor of Russia had given some chests for the benefit of the travellers. And lastly, to crown the repast, Ardin brought out a fine battle of Nuit, which was found by chance in the provision-box. The three friends drank to the union of the earth and her satellite. 
and as if he had not already done enough for the generous wine which he had distilled on the slopes of Burgundy, the son chose to be of the party. At this moment the projectile emerged from the conical shadow cast by the terrestrial globe, and the rays of the radiant orb struck the lower disk of the projectile direct, occasioned by the angle which the moon's orbit makes with that of the earth. "'The sun!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'No doubt,' replied Barbicane. "'I expected it.' "'But,' said Michel, "'the conical shadow which the earth leaves in space extends beyond the moon.' "'Far beyond it, if the atmospheric refraction is not taken into consideration,' said Barbicane. "'But when the moon is enveloped in this shadow, it is because the centres of the three stars, the sun, the earth, and the moon, are all in one and the same straight line. Then the nodes coincide with the phases of the moon, and there is an eclipse. If we had started when there was an eclipse of the moon, all our passage would have been in the shadow, which would have been a pity. Why? Because, though we are floating in space, our projectile, bathed in the solar rays, will receive their light and heat. It economizes the gas, which is in every respect a good economy. Indeed, under these rays which no atmosphere can temper, either in temperature or brilliancy, the projectile grew warm and bright, as if it had passed suddenly from winter to summer. The moon above, the sun beneath, were inundating it with their fire. "'It is pleasant here,' said Nicholl. "'I should think so,' said Michel Ardin. "'With a little earth spread on our aluminum planet we shall have green peas in twenty-four hours. I have but one fear, which is that the walls of the projectile might melt.' "'Calm yourself, my worthy friend,' replied Barbicane. The projectile withstood a very much higher temperature than this as it slid through the strata of the atmosphere. I should not be surprised if it did not look like a meteor on fire to the eyes of the spectators in Florida. But then Joseph T. Maston will think we are roasted. What astonishes me, said Barbicane, is that we have not been. That was a danger we had not provided for. I feared it said Nicholl, simply. "'And you never mentioned it, my sublime captain!' exclaimed Michel Ardin, clasping his friend's hand. Barbicane now began to settle himself in the projectile, as if he was never to leave it. One must remember that this aerial car had a base with a superficies of fifty-four square feet. Its height to the roof was twelve feet. Carefully laid out in the inside, and little encumbered by instruments and travelling utensils which each had their particular place, it left the three travellers a certain freedom of movement. The thick window, inserted in the bottom, could bear any amount of weight, and Barbicane and his companions walked upon it as if it were solid plank. But the sun, striking it directly with its rays, lit the interior of the projectile from beneath, thus producing singular effects of light. They began by investigating the state of their store of water and provisions, neither of which had suffered, thanks to the care taken to deaden the shock. Their provisions were abundant, and plentiful enough to last the three travellers for more than a year. Barbicane wished to be cautious, 
in case the projectile should land on a part of the moon which was utterly barren. As to water, and the reserve of brandy, which consisted of fifty gallons, there was only enough for two months, but, according to the last observations of astronomers, the moon had a low, dense, and thick atmosphere, at least in the deep valleys, and there springs and streams could not fail. Thus, during their passage, and for the first year of their settlement on the lunar continent, these adventurous explorers would suffer neither hunger nor thirst. Now about the air in the projectile. There, too, they were secure. Ricet and Reynaud's apparatus, intended for the production of oxygen, was supplied with chlorate of potassium for two months. They necessarily consumed a certain quantity of gas, for they were obliged to keep the producing substance at a temperature of above four hundred degrees. But there again they were all safe. The apparatus only wanted a little care. But it was not enough to renew the oxygen— they must absorb the carbonic acid produced by expiration. During the last twelve hours the atmosphere of the projectile had become charged with this deleterious gas. Nicol discovered the state of the air by observing Diana panting painfully. The carbonic acid, by a phenomenon similar to that produced in the famous Grotto del Cane, had collected at the bottom of the projectile owing to its weight. Poor Diana! with her head low, would suffer before her masters from the presence of this gas. But Captain Nicholl hastened to remedy this state of things by placing on the floor several receivers containing caustic potash, which he shook about for a time, and this substance, greedy of carbonic acid, soon completely absorbed it, thus purifying the air. An inventory of instruments was then begun. The thermometers and barometers had resisted, all but one minimum thermometer, the glass of which was broken. An excellent aneroid was drawn from the wadded box which contained it and hung on the wall. Of course it was only affected by and marked the pressure of the air inside the projectile, but it also showed the quantity of moisture which it contained. At that moment its needle oscillated between 25.24 and 25.08. It was fine weather. Barbicane had also brought several compasses, which he found intact. One must understand that under present conditions their needles were acting wildly, that is, without any constant direction. Indeed, at the distance they were from the earth, the magnetic pole could have no perceptible action upon the apparatus but the box placed on the lunar disk might perhaps exhibit some strange phenomena. In any case, it would be interesting to see whether the Earth's satellite submitted, like herself, to its magnetic influence. A hypsometer to measure the height of the lunar mountains, a sextant to take the height of the sun, glasses which would be useful as they neared the moon, all these instruments were carefully looked over and pronounced good in spite of the violent shock. As to the pickaxes and different tools which were Nicholl's especial choice, as to the sacks of different kinds of grain and shrubs which Michel Ardin hoped to transplant into selenite ground, they were stowed away in the upper part of the projectile. There was a sort of granary there, loaded with things which the extravagant Frenchman had heaped up, 
What they were no one knew, and the good-tempered fellow did not explain. Now and then he climbed up by cramp-irons riveted to the walls, but kept the inspection to himself. He arranged and rearranged. He plunged his hand rapidly into certain mysterious boxes, singing in one of the falsest of voices an old French refrain to enliven the situation. Barbicane observed with some interest that his guns and other arms had not been damaged. These were important, because, heavily loaded, they were to help to lessen the fall of the projectile, when drawn by the lunar attraction, after having passed the point of neutral attraction, onto the moon's surface, a fall which ought to be six times less rapid than it would have been on the earth's surface, thanks to the difference of bulk. The inspection ended with general satisfaction, when each returned to watch space through the side windows and the lower glass cover lid. There was the same view. The whole extent of the celestial sphere swarmed with stars and constellations of wonderful purity, enough to drive an astronomer out of his mind. On one side the sun, like the mouth of a lighted oven, a dazzling disk without a halo, standing out on the dark background of the sky. On the other, the moon returning its fire by reflection, and apparently motionless in the midst of the starry world. Then, a large spot seemingly nailed to the firmament, bordered by a silvery cord. It was the earth. Here and there nebulous masses like large flakes of starry snow, and from the zenith to the nadir, an immense ring formed by an impalpable dust of stars, the Milky Way, in the midst of which the sun ranks only as a star of the fourth magnitude. The observers could not take their eyes from this novel spectacle, of which no description could give an adequate idea. What reflections it suggested! What emotions hitherto unknown awoke in their souls! Barbicane wished to begin the relation of his journey while under its first impressions, and hour after hour took notes of all facts happening in the beginning of the enterprise. He wrote quietly, with his large square writing, in a business-like style. During this time Nicol, the calculator, looked over the minutes of their passage, and worked out figures with unparalleled dexterity. Michel Ardin chatted first with Barbicane, who did not answer him, and then with Nicol, who did not hear him, with Diana, who understood none of his theories, and lastly with himself, questioning and answering, coming and going, busy with a thousand details, at one time bent over the lower glass, at another roosting in the heights of the projectile, and always singing. In this microcosm he represented French loquacity and excitability, and we beg you to believe that they were well represented. The day, or rather, for the expression is not correct, the lapse of twelve hours, which forms a day upon earth, closed with a plentiful supper carefully prepared. No accident of any nature had yet happened to shake the traveller's confidence. So, full of hope, Already sure of his success, they slept peacefully, whilst the projectile under a uniformly decreasing speed was crossing the sky. End of chapter
Chapter Four of Round the Moon by Jules Verne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne, Chapter Four: A Little Algebra. The night passed without incident. The word night, however, is scarcely applicable. The position of the projectile with regard to the sun did not change. Astronomically, it was daylight on the lower part and night on the upper. So when, during this narrative, these words are used, they represent the lapse of time between the rising and setting of the sun upon the earth. The traveller's sleep was rendered more peaceful by the projectile's excessive speed for it seemed absolutely motionless. Not a motion betrayed its onward course through space. The rate of progress, however rapid it might be, cannot produce any sensible effect on the human frame when it takes place in a vacuum, or when the mass of air circulates with the body which is carried with it. What inhabitant of the earth perceives its speed, which, however, is at the rate of sixty-eight thousand miles per hour? Motion under such conditions is felt no more than repose, and when a body is in repose, it will remain so as long as no strange force displaces it. If moving, it will not stop unless an obstacle comes in its way. This indifference to motion or repose is called inertia. Barbicane and his companions might have believed themselves perfectly stationary, being shut up in the projectile. Indeed, the effect would have been the same if they had been on the outside of it. Had it not been for the moon, which was increasing above them, they might have sworn that they were floating in complete stagnation. That morning, the 3rd of December, the travellers were awakened by a joyful but unexpected noise. It was the crowing of a cock, which sounded through the car. Michel Ardin, who was the first on his feet, climbed to the top of the projectile, and shutting a box, the lid of which was partly open, said in a low voice, "'Will you hold your tongue? That creature will spoil my design.' But Nicol and Barbicane were awake. "'A cock!' said Nicol. Uh, "'Why, no, my friends,' Michel answered quickly. "'It was I who wished to awake you by this rural sound.' So saying, he gave vent to a splendid cock-a-doodle-doo, which would have done honour to the proudest of poultry-yards. <laughs> the two Americans could not help laughing. "'Fine talent, that,' said Nicol, looking suspiciously at his companion. "'Oh, yes,' said Michel. "'A joke in my country. It is very Gallic. They play the cock so in the best society.' Then, turning the conversation— "'Barbicane, do you know what I have been thinking of all night?' "'No,' answered the President. "'Of our Cambridge friends. You have already remarked that I am an ignoramus in mathematical subjects, and it is impossible for me to find out how the savants of the observatory were able to calculate what initiatory speed the projectile ought to have on leaving the Columbiad in order to attain the moon.' "'You mean to say—' replied Barbicane, to attain that neutral point where the terrestrial and lunar attractions are equal. For, starting from that point, 
situated about nine-tenths of the distance travelled over, the projectile would simply fall upon the moon on account of its weight. "'So be it,' said Michel. "'But, once more, how could they calculate the initiatory speed?' "'Nothing can be easier,' replied Barbicane. "'And you knew how to make that calculation?' asked Michel Ardin. "'Perfectly. Nicholl and I would have made it if the observatory had not saved us the trouble.' "'Very well, old Barbicane,' replied Michel. "'They might have cut off my head, beginning at my feet, before they could have made me solve that problem.' "'Because you do not know algebra.' answered Barbicane quietly. "'Ah, there you are, you eaters of X to the first power. You think you have said all when you have said algebra.' "'Michel,' said Barbicane, "'can you use a forge without a hammer, or plough without a ploughshare?' "'Hardly.' "'Well, algebra is a tool, like the plough or the hammer, and a good tool to those who know how to use it.' seriously quite seriously and can you use that tool in my presence if it will interest you and show me how they calculated the initiatory speed of our car yes my worthy friend taking into consideration all the elements of the problem the distance from the centre of the earth to the centre of the moon of the radius of the earth of its bulk and of the bulk of the moon I can tell exactly what ought to be the initiatory speed of the projectile, and that by a simple formula. Let us see. You shall see it. Only I shall not give you the real course drawn by the projectile between the moon and the earth in considering their motion round the sun. No, I shall consider these two orbs as perfectly motionless, which will answer all our purpose. And why? because it will be trying to solve the problem called the problem of the three bodies, for which the integral calculus is not yet far enough advanced. Then, said Michel Ardin in his sly tone, mathematics has not said their last word? Certainly not, replied Barbicane. Well, perhaps the Selenites have carried the integral calculus farther than you have. And, by the by, what is integral calculus? It is a calculation the converse of the differential, replied Barbicane seriously. Much obliged. It is all very clear, no doubt. And now, continued Barbicane, a slip of paper and a bit of pencil, and before a half-hour is over I will have found the required formula. Half an hour had not elapsed before Barbicane, raising his head, showed Michel Ardin a page covered with algebraical signs, in which the general formula for the solution was contained. "'Well, and does Nicol understand what that means?' "'Of course, Michel,' replied the captain. "'All these signs, which seem cabalistic to you, form the plainest, the clearest, and the most logical language to those who know how to read it.' "'And you pretend, Nicol asked Michel, that by means of these hieroglyphics, more incomprehensible than the Egyptian ibis, you can find what initiatory speed it was necessary to give to the projectile? Incontestably, replied Nicol. 
and even by the same formula I can always tell you its speed at any point in its transit. On your word? On my word. Then you are as cunning as our president. No, Michel, the difficult part is what Barbicane has done. That is, to get an equation which will satisfy all the conditions of the problem. The remainder is only a question of arithmetic, requiring merely the knowledge of the four rules. That is something, replied Michel Ardin, who for his life could not do addition right, and who defined the rule as a Chinese puzzle which allowed one to obtain all sorts of totals. The expression V0, which you see in that equation, is the speed which the projectile will have on leaving the atmosphere. Just so, said Nicol. It is from that point that we must calculate the velocity, since we know already that the velocity at departure was exactly one and a half times more than on leaving the atmosphere. I understand no more, said Michel. It is a very simple calculation, said Barbicane. Not as simple as I am, retorted Michel. That means that when our projectile reached the limits of the terrestrial atmosphere, it had already lost one-third of its initiatory speed. As much as that? Yes, my friend, merely by friction against the atmospheric strata. You understand that the faster it goes, the more resistance it meets with from the air. Well, that I admit, answered Michel, and I understand it although your X's and zeros and algebraic formulae are rattling in my head like nails in a bag. First effects of algebra, replied Barbicane, and now, to finish, we are going to prove the given number of these different expressions, that is, work out their value. Finish me, replied Michel. Barbicane took the paper, and began again to make his calculations with great rapidity. Nicol looked over, and greedily read the work as it proceeded. "'That's it! That's it!' at last he cried. "'Is it clear?' asked Barbicane. "'It is written in letters of fire,' said Nicol. "'Wonderful fellows!' muttered Ardin. "'Do you understand it at last?' asked Barbicane. "'Do I understand it?' cried Ardin. "'My head is splitting with it!' "'And now,' said Nicol, "'to find out the speed of the projectile when it left the atmosphere, we have only to calculate that.' The captain, as a practical man equal to all difficulties, began to write with frightful rapidity. Divisions and multiplications grew under his fingers. The figures were like hail on the white page.' Barbicane watched him, whilst Michel Ardin nursed a growing headache with both hands. "'Very well?' asked Barbicane, after some minutes' silence. "'Well,' replied Nicol, "'every calculation made, V-zero, that is to say, the speed necessary for the projectile on leaving the atmosphere, to enable it to reach the equal point of attraction, ought to be—' "'Yes,' said Barbicane. Twelve thousand yards. What? exclaimed Barbicane, starting. You say, twelve thousand yards. The devil! cried the president, making a gesture of despair. What is the matter? 
asked Michel Ardin, much surprised. "'What is the matter? Why, if at this moment our speed had already diminished one-third by friction, the initiatory speed ought to have been seventeen thousand yards. And the Cambridge Observatory declared that twelve thousand yards was enough at starting, and our projectile, which only started with that speed—' "'Well?' asked Nicholl. "'Well, it will not be enough.' "'Good.' We shall not be able to reach the neutral point. The deuce! We shall not even get halfway. In the name of the projectile! exclaimed Michel Ardin, jumping as if it was already on the point of striking the terrestrial globe. And we shall fall back upon the earth! End of chapter. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.